The word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So concludes the word. Well, I have a question for you, because I want you to think with me as we get started here. How, how many of you enjoy making decisions? Don't think too long. Just, just be honest, okay? And we're going to use hands, all right? So, if you enjoy making decisions, put your hand up. Enjoy making decisions. Okay. That's a decided minority. But I think there are a couple things true about you. Pick a situation. You love weighing the pros and cons. Those of you think like that, evaluating the various factors involved, choosing a certain course of action, you, you get a certain thrill, a certain charge, I'm going to presume, in checking off decisions one after another. A good day is a day full of decisions and they all got made, whether in your personal life, your work life, or your family life. Now, let's, let's switch and see what the majority is feeling in here. How many of you hate making decisions? Wow. Yep, I knew that. <laughs> My wife's on the front row. We talk about this. I'm going to assume a couple things about you, okay? So pick a situation. I think you really wish someone else would just tell you what to do. Is that true? Just tell you what to do. Here's your marching orders. Make the decision for you. Making decisions stresses you out. So do I take this class or that class? Do I, do I buy this shirt or that shirt? If I bought that shirt, do I wear it on this day or that day? Do I take this job or that job? Uh, you are the type that tends to put off decisions as long as possible. Many times because you're afraid that if you go ahead and make a decision, you'll probably get it wrong and live to regret the choice. Right? Yeah. Well, in case you didn't know this, as a pastor, I get involved in all kinds of conversation about decisions. Uh, people come to me as a pastor looking for wise counsel to make decisions. Now, there, there are many people that sometimes need the counsel the most that don't come. That's another issue. But I'm grateful for those that do come. And the conversation usually goes like this. Pastor, I don't know what God wants me to do. What, what do you think? God's will is for me in this situation. And, and I love that question. I love that question. If you've never, you're working through a decision and you've never asked a pastor that question, come and ask me that question. I'd be glad to talk with you about that because it's a good question. Ask from the right motives, it's also a humble question. 
But I think sometimes God's answer, or, or rather his lack thereof, to all our decision questions, can frustrate us. You know, there's, there's no chapter or verse in the Bible, at least I haven't found one yet, that tells you exactly which college you should attend, right? Or exactly which job you should take. Or the exact name of the person you should marry. And so from, from major decisions down to, to seemingly mundane decisions, there's, there's all these areas of life where God's revealed will or what God tells us to do and not do in his word is not explicitly clear. So we just get to do whatever we want to do. No, right? No. What do we do? What do we do? We have to do the hard work of identifying the relevant biblical principles And then wrestle to figure out how to best apply them with the help of the Spirit in the details of our situation. There's a lot of life that falls into that. Those kinds of gray areas. But friends, there are many areas of life, many areas, where God's revealed will is crystal clear. It's not a a gray area. What, What our creator king has commanded us to do or not do is spelled out in black and white. For all peoples, all times, all situations, it's, it's not flexible or negotiable, okay? There's not room in many areas of life for faithful Christians, well, this is what I think, well, that's what I think, who knows what we should think, let's just agree to disagree. No. No, like the runway lights, if you've ever been to an airport at night, like the runway lights that that show a plane exactly where to land in the dark. Here, not here, right? The Bible tells us exactly where the path of spiritual blessing and safety lies. Many areas of life. And these verses are one of those places. One of those places. Because in this area of life that that Paul is addressing here as he writes this letter to the Thessalonians, the Lord through Paul is giving them instruction in the first century that is the exact same instruction that the Lord gives to you and me today. Why do I say that? Cultures change, Pastor. They do. But God doesn't change. (laughs) Cultures change, but God doesn't change, so so God's will remains. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. It's not a mystery. It's not a gray area. Something is crystal clear. Lights down the runway. This is the path of spiritual safety and blessing. For this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I told my wife this week that I thought it was going to be really quiet on Sunday when I preached this sermon. And I think the reason for that is that this is a hard topic. But this is an exceedingly relevant topic. And it's also a very simple message in some respects, okay? At least it's simple to understand. I'd summarize it this way. Pleasing God means pursuing holiness, especially in our sexuality. That's simple, right? Pleasing God means what? 
pursuing holiness, especially in our our sexuality. Simple to understand, I would argue that is exceedingly hard to live out. Exceedingly hard. Why? Because we live in a world that couldn't be more confused about a whole variety of things. Who God is, what holiness is, let alone what is right and wrong when it comes to our sexuality, right? So we want to think carefully here. So let's do that. Point number one, we're going to break that summary down. Point number one, pleasing God means pursuing holiness. I'm focusing on verses one to the first part of three. So if you look at verse one, when, when Paul and his coworkers say, finally then, brothers, you might think, oh, he's pulling a preacher movie. He says, finally, then he's like, God, I don't know how many chapters left. No, no, the preachers can do that. I will attempt not to. In conclusion for the fourth time. No, Paul is, as a primary author, he's making a transition. So he's gone from defending the integrity of his ministry, chapter 2, chapter 3, to in chapter 4, turning to exhort and instruct the church in Thessalonica. So look at verse 1 again. What does he say? We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Notice that, that simple phrase. In the Lord Jesus. That tells us Paul isn't requesting a favor from the Thessalonians as his friends. He's not asking for a favor. He's not saying, y'all better listen to me because I'm the one who led you to faith in Christ. So remember that all you are, you owe to me. So shut up and listen. No, he's not saying that. He addresses them as who? Those who are in the Lord Jesus, as one who is himself in the Lord Jesus. In other words, friends, Paul doesn't begin this whole section in the book of instruction and exhortation with what the Thessalonians need to do. What does he begin with? He begins with who they are, with their identity. Because if you're a Christian, if you've turned away from living for yourself and turned toward trusting and obeying Jesus, you know what God has given you? He's given you a new identity in Jesus Christ. The answer to who are you has radically changed. You are not Christian who you once were. Think about this. Every human being who has ever lived falls into one of two kingdoms. Okay, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. One of two spheres of existence. So so if you're in the kingdom of this world, you're trying to satisfy your soul with all the pleasures of this life. That's what you're doing. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of this world. If you're in the kingdom of God, what are you doing? You are fighting, notice that word, fighting to satisfy your soul with the joy of knowing Jesus. That's the difference. And the only way to be part of the kingdom of God is to be found in Christ. In Christ, to to be spiritually united with him through repentance and faith. And that's a reminder that a Christian isn't just someone who likes Jesus or somebody who imitates Jesus or, you know, hey, there's a lot of religious options out there. And, you know, I think Jesus is, yeah, probably top of this chart, pretty cool. No, not at all. A Christian is someone who abides in Jesus, okay? Who, who finds rest for their soul in Jesus, who enjoys sweet fellowship with Jesus in covenant relationship with him, which is why Jesus says in John 14, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Make our home with him. Why do I belabor this point about our identity in Christ? Well, here's why, okay? I belabor this because I think we often view Christianity as a set of external behaviors or a moral code. That's not true, friend. Now, there is a moral code in the Christian faith, right? There are a set of behaviors that say very clearly, at least they should, to you and everybody around you, are you following Jesus or are you not? And yet, it's not a moral code or our external behavior that's the foundation of Christianity. What, what is it? It's a new life in Jesus that comes with a new identity and membership in a new kingdom. Paul isn't asking the Thessalonians to just change their behavior here and become someone they're presently not. He's urging them, exhorting them to walk out the kind of life that is in keeping with who they already are. That's how he's rolling here. So, so what does this new life in the Lord Jesus consist of? What, is it, what does it mean to live out your identity in Christ? Look back at verse 1. Because verse 1 is loaded. It means living to please God. Think about that. Living to please God. You know, the good news of the gospel, the good news of what, what Jesus has done to accomplish salvation for mankind, tells us that we can never earn God's love and acceptance through our good works. Right? That's what the gospel tells us. We only receive God's love and forgiveness as we were singing this morning as a gift of grace. You can't earn that. You receive that as a gift of grace. And yet the same grace, the same undeserved favor that makes us right with God also does what? It frees and empowers us to live a life that is pleasing to God. Not, not because we're trying to run around and, and hit enough pleasing buttons like whack-a-mole to, to earn God's love and acceptance, but because we've already freely received God's love and acceptance because of Jesus. And we're freed and empowered to love and please him in return. So, so think about this. I won't ask you to raise your hands on this one. Have you ever had a family member or a friend who you just felt like was crazy hard to please? Mm. <laughs> oh, but you know what? Let's do this. Let's just do hands. Have you ever had a family member or a friend you felt like was crazy hard to please? My eyes are closed. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, John? I mean, it's, that's a common human experience. Figuring out how to please somebody sometimes feels like one part mystery and two parts futility. It's just a lost cause. Friends, do you know that pleasing, if you're a Christian, pleasing your father in heaven is never like that. It's never like that. It's not one part mystery, two parts futility. It's not a lost 
cause. God, our Heavenly Father is not hard to please. And, and what we need to do if we're going to please him, it's not a mystery. It's what? It's been clearly revealed and given to us through his word. I mean, maybe some of you who are married are thinking, man, can I just get like a manual to, to please my spouse like this? You know, it's not a mystery. This whole book is a guide for you and how to please God. It's not a mystery. And notice, look back at verse 1. I told you we were going to camp out here. Notice how Paul refers in verse 1 to what the Thessalonians received from him. And in verse 2, to the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So think about that. What, What kind of instruction was that? What was the same instruction in person back then that he's about to give them in writing, which is the same instruction we're holding in our hands today? And that little phrase at the end of verse 2 For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus is so important, friends. Why? Because it reminds us that the instruction Paul's about to give, the reminders he's about to bring, isn't something that we should listen to and obey because, ooh, St. Paul, that's crazy authority. No. No. Who is speaking with supreme authority through the Apostle Paul? The Lord has. It's God's authority that stands behind the word of God. And so when we hear God's word, what we're about to read here, we need to receive it and obey it because Paul speaks with the authority of King Jesus himself. And we need to remember that. You need to remember that, friend. Whenever you you read the Bible or you listen to the word preached, look at verse 8. Here's why. Because whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Couldn't be more clear. That the instruction in the Bible about how to please the Lord is not your parents' idea or your pastor's idea or your friend's idea, or the church's idea, or what somebody else thinks, or what somebody else wants to believe, it is what God has said, friend. It's what God has said. You, you are confronted in this book with the very words of your God himself. He's talking to you. He's getting in your face. And in these verses, God himself is telling you how to please him. Not not just once or twice, but notice back to verse 1. How to do so more and more and more. I I love how Paul commends the Thessalonians in verse 2. What does he say? Basically, he says, guys, be encouraged, Okay. You're already walking in a manner that is pleasing to God. Know that, receive that, rejoice in that, rest in that. Know that right now through your life, you are bringing serious pleasure to your Father who is in heaven. And yet, that doesn't mean they're done. Why? Because apparently, they are still fighting some struggles with some pretty serious sins. But notice, because they are in Christ, they are following Jesus, that the presence of these 
evidently lingering sexual sins that he's about to address doesn't change the fact that right now, even in other areas of life, they are genuinely pleasing to the Father. We need that perspective. One of the things that sexual sin and struggle can do, and the evil one loves when it does this, is it just takes over our whole view of how we're doing with Jesus. And it is very serious, and we're about to look at that because it is very serious. But, but don't forget that it is possible to be struggling mightily to please the Lord in one area of life while you are, through the power of the Spirit, genuinely pleasing him in another area of life. We need that perspective and that comfort. And yet the charge is the same. Don't stop. Keep learning. Translation, don't listen to a sermon like this and say, got that. Hey, what's for lunch? No, no. Find out how to please the Lord. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord that we might do so more and more and more. So what does that look like? Well, let's look at verse 3. Because the Lord tells us in verse 3, he tells us exactly how to please him. So remember the situations where you feel like, I don't have a clue how to please that person. God's not like that. He tells us exactly how to please him. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. In case you're not counting, that's a 14-letter word. It's a big word, but, but the meaning is very simple. It's not complicated. Being sanctified simply means to become more and more holy. So a more literal translation of verse 3 might be, for this is the will of God, this is what is pleasing to God, your holiness. All right, well, that was a helpful pastor. Now I need to know what holiness means. Well, I'll try to help you, okay? Being, being sanctified or being holy isn't about being better than other people. You know, we hear that sometimes. Oh, they're good. I'm holier than thou. No, no, it's about becoming more like God. That's what holiness is. More like God. It's about bringing every area of our life in alignment with his character and his ways. It's about imitating the one in whose image we were created. Why? Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy because I think it's cool. Because your parents thought it was a good idea and would keep you out of trouble. Because your pastor waved his arms and got excited about it on Sunday. No. You shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. I, the Lord your God, am holy. And and mind you, when the Lord says that, he's not saying, I'm holy because I comport, I align with some kind of cosmic standard of holiness outside all of us. No, God is holy because he is the standard of holiness. He is perfect in all his ways. Whatever behavior reflects the perfection of his glory is holy. Whatever behavior does not reflect the perfection of his glory is unholy. If you want to please the Lord, it's not a mystery. There's one thing you have to do, friend. You have to be increasingly holy, like God. It's not a status we achieve. It's a direction we run. And nowhere is that running more important an area of life to which Paul now turns. Point two. If pleasing God means pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness means honoring God with our sexuality. Simple. Not hard to understand. Really hard to do. 
pleasing God means pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness means honoring God with our sexuality. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, your holiness. That you abstain from sexual immorality. But what does abstaining mean? Abstaining means to what? Refrain from something. Avoid something. Stay away from something. Not, don't make contact with something. So, so what do we need to abstain from? What do, what do we need to avoid to not get anywhere close to if we're going to please the Lord more and more? Well, we have to abstain from any sexual activity that is not in alignment, is not in keeping with God's creative design for our bodies. Genesis 2, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Some of you in this room have been naked with another man or woman and felt very ashamed. But Adam and Eve were not. Let's think about why. The the foundation of biblical morality, what, what makes something right or makes it wrong, please hear this, friend, is not a personal construct. It's not found by by looking within yourself as if whatever you desire or whatever you feel like doing must be good. It's not a personal construct, nor is it a social construct. It's not not found. We don't find what makes something right or wrong by, by looking at the people around us and saying, oh, wow, there's two consenting adults. They both think that's cool, so that must be cool. That, that must be good and right. No. It's, a, it's not a social construct. It's not a personal construct. Biblical morality is a divine construct. Because what makes something right is whether it is in keeping, it is in alignment with God's decrees and God's ways as revealed in all of creation and especially in his written word. Whatever's in alignment with that is good. Whatever's not in keeping with that is is evil. So so what does Genesis 2 teach us about sexual morality and immorality, okay? Listen, I'll give it to you in a sentence. God created sex for one biological man and one biological woman to enjoy exclusively in the lifelong covenant of marriage. Period. Any sexual activity outside of that covenant relationship in all times, in all cultures, in all situations, for all ages and races and perceived felt genders is wrong. It doesn't matter if you really love each other. 
doesn't matter if you'll eventually get married. If you are not married, one biological man, one biological woman, and you are engaging in sexual activity, that is wrong. There's nothing fuzzy about that. There's nothing fuzzy about the line between what is sexually moral and immoral. Like I said, it's not hard to know how to please God with our sexuality. What is hard? The actual work of trying to do that. Oh my goodness, that's hard. So hard. Because we live in a fallen world. You, you realize, many of you in this church, because of our history, you, I don't have to tell you this, that even affects your pastors and leaders. You don't become immune to the struggle to abstain from sexual immorality by getting married. You don't. I was meeting with some guys yesterday, young men, discipleship. I'm the only married guy. And I just told him that. I was like, guys, listen, marriage isn't like this sex playground where it's just like, oh my word, now, now the battle's gone. No, not at all. Nor does being a pastor remove you from temptation. The simple fact that I'm up here preaching what is sexually moral and what is sexually immoral doesn't remove me from, from being a fellow struggler with you, friends. I, I need you to pray for me that I, as a pastor, would abstain from sexual immorality. <laughs> because we're in this together. We're in the same fight. This isn't a men's issue or a women's This is a human struggle. Okay? And so as we're in this battle fighting together, I'm grateful God helps us. You know, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm holy. Get with the program. Hey, you're out of line. What does he do? He loves us by equipping us for the battle. He loves us by equipping us. So I think there are at least four practical helps in the second half of this passage that can help all of us honor God with our sexuality, okay? So I've organized these in the form of four practices. So if you're thinking, all right, I get the standard. I don't know if I like it, Pastor. I'm not even sure I'm cool with Christianity, so now I'm really not sure I'm cool, but I'm at least tracking mentally with you. Good. But if you are following Jesus, if you want to honor him with your sexuality, then there are a couple practices that can help you. Practice number one, self-control. I hope this isn't rocket science, okay? But it's just what God says. Chapter 4, verse 4, look there. That each one of you, what does this abstaining look like? It looks like that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. I'm going to linger on this first practice because I think this is probably one of the most important. Because it's probably the one that most flies in the face of pretty much every other voice screaming around us and inside of us. Why do I say that? Well, what does the world say? The world says, if it feels good, it must be good. If it's what your body wants to do, then you have a right to do it. As long as nobody else gets hurt. <laughs> 
What does God say? God says, don't be ruled by your physical desires. Rule over your physical desires. Control them. Restrain them in light of what is holy and and honorable in the sight of God. So, So that begs this question, doesn't it? What is so wrong with just going with the flow? I mean, why... I have these desires. I want to do these activities. So, so what is so wrong with just doing that? I mean, it feels good. They said it's good. They said it felt good to them. So, so what's wrong with me just doing it? Well, friend, the simple answer is that our physical bodies, like every other part of us, have been corrupted by sin. <laughs> That doesn't mean every physical desire, including all your sexual desires, are bad. Okay? It does mean that we need God's word to distinguish between both sexual desires and sexual activities that are holy and pleasing to God and that are unholy and not pleasing to God, no matter what your perceived sexual orientation is. And so to the degree our sexual desires and actions align with God's creative design— they are holy and good. To the degree our sexual desires and actions don't align with God's creative design, they are unholy and sinful. And we please God, notice this, by exercising self-control over all of them. All of them. Here, here's the key question we have to ask here. Lord, what do I need to do so I can honor you with my body instead of being controlled by my body? What do I need to do so that I can honor you with my body instead of being controlled by my body? That might mean refusing to linger in bed or in the shower. It might mean refusing to watch movies or or read books or listen to music that will awaken in you an appetite for what God says is forbidden. You know, sometimes I talk with folks and it's like we have this attitude that self-control means feeding and stoking and nourishing all these sexual desires that we are not able to act on, and then right before we do it, like we slam the door in their face. Oh, man, I almost crossed the line. Let's try that again because it felt good. Yeah, you know, that's craziness, right? You have to be humble and honest before God who knows all things about you. What do you need to do so that you can control your body instead of being controlled by it. It might mean being really weird. And if you have a girlfriend or boyfriend doing stunning, scandalous things, like saying, I can't be alone with you in your bedroom or apartment. Christian freedom! (laughs) Yeah? But it's freedom to practice holiness. We got to remember that. And by the way, under this point, knowing how to control your own body applies just as much to sex in the context of biblical marriage. So think about this. I, I have been involved in some grievous situations as a pastor where a professing Christian is insisting that their spouse has a biblical obligation 
to do for them sexually whatever they want them to do for them sexually. You know what that is? That's abuse. That's not love. That's wicked. Notice Paul doesn't say in verse 4 that all of you all single people need some self-control. But if you're married, anything goes. No, the point of verse 4 is that whether we're single or married, we all need to exercise self-control over our sexual desires so we can live in a way that is holy and pleasing to God with our bodies instead of being controlled by our bodies, by the passions of our flesh. Practice 1, abstaining from sexual immorality means practicing self-control. Practice 2, practicing justice. Practice self-control, practice justice. Look at verse 6. What's it mean to abstain? It means that no one transgress and wrong his brother. You know, friends, when we, when we sin sexually, we are not just sinning against the Lord. Think about that. We are sinning against another person in many cases, which is a all, all the more grievous if that person is a fellow Christian. So, so what does the world say? What does the world say? The world says, as long as you have consent and no one gets hurt, you are fine. Go for it. What does God say? God says, a man or a woman doesn't have to feel like you're violating them in order for you to actually be violating them. When we involve another person in sexual immorality, we are sinning against them, regardless of whether they agree with our actions or are even aware of our actions. But brother, I mean, come on, Matthew. I'm a red-blooded male. I mean, if that woman didn't want me to look at her that way, well, then why'd she put her picture up on the internet for all to see? Brother, you are sinning against that woman, even if she never knows your name and never sees your face or what you did with her picture. You're involving her in what God has forbidden, and in so doing, you are sinning against her. That, that word in verse 6, let let no one transgress or wrong. That word for wrong, that's a really strong word in Greek. It means things like don't take advantage of someone. Don't exploit them. Don't defraud them. Don't cheat them. It means that if you sin sexually and involve someone else, whether they know it or not, you, you are committing an act of injustice against that person in the sight of God. Failing to honor and respect them as God would have you. And the Lord commands us to practice what? To practice justice, which means refusing to use another person sexually, whether they want it or not, in an unholy way that doesn't please the Lord. We have to practice self-control. We have to practice justice. Third, we need to practice fear. We need to practice fear. 
I hope that catches your attention. That seems like an odd thing to say, and I say it that way for a reason. If, if you're toying right now, and maybe nobody else knows this, but you know this, with what God has forbidden, if, if you're not fighting to exercise self-control, if you're practicing injustice, you should be frightened. Why? Verse 6. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. If you are running towards sexual morality, friend, justifying it, excusing it, instead of fighting to run away from it, you need to know that God sees. And God is watching. And God will repay you accordingly. But, but what do we tell ourselves to shut up that voice? We say things like, it's not like I'm a bad person. It's not like I'm hurting anyone. We, we love each other. What's the big deal? I mean, come on, God. If you didn't want me to indulge these sexual desires, then why would you have given to me? Why would you given me in the first place? I mean, if that's really what you wanted, then, you know, you gave them. We, we, we pull a, a so there to God. And yet the terrifying reality is that when King Jesus returns, so many sexual behaviors and activities that are completely normal in our culture, we don't even bat an eye, that are, that are celebrated in our movies, you know, the adultery was, I mean, we know it's technically wrong, but I mean, man, that previous guy was a jerk and she really deserved better and, and all of that. All of that, friends, will incur the wrath and judgment of a holy God. It doesn't matter how many other people are doing it. What matters is what God has said about it. There is not another human being on this earth who on the final day is going to judge you for what you did with your body. God will. Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so if you, if you feel, maybe in a fresh way as I'm talking about this, you feel that holy fear. If you've, if you've fallen into sexual sin and the Lord is graciously convicting you of the guilt of your sin before the day of judgment, do you know what a mercy that is, friend? Do you know what a kindness that is? Do you know how many people just walk their entire life and they never have a single moment where they recognize, oh my Oh my, I'm going to be judged for that. If God has shown you that, I have one instruction for you. Right now, I want you to flee to Jesus Christ. You need to flee to Christ, okay? Don't promise him you'll do better tomorrow. Don't try to clean yourself out. I want you to bring your guilt and your regret and your sin and your sorrow to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and ask him to cleanse you because there's no sexual sin that is too great or too shameful or too crazy twisted that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot forgive and cleanse. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness, sexual sin included. But some of you need to stop waiting and stop presuming and stop treating the gospel as if it is a get-out-of-jail-free card because it is not. The gospel is a run-to-Jesus-and-find-mercy invitation because the stakes couldn't be higher, okay? If we're going to abstain from sexual immorality, self-control, justice, fear of the Lord. Lastly, and we will finally conclude with this, we need to practice submission. Practice submission. You know, we, we need to remember, maybe you thought this, I won't do hands again, but we need to remember that it's not as though holiness is kind of on a menu. You ever been to a restaurant? I feel like the Cheesecake Factory is like this. You just open up the menu and you just like, ah! all you, I hate decisions people, just shut it and go home. But, but it's not as though holiness is one option on the pleasing God menu with like a hundred other choices. And you can say, yeah, you know, that works for you, but you know, I'm not really into that whole holiness thing. So, so I please God in other ways. I order these items. No friend, that's a lie. That's a lie. Holiness is the only thing that is pleasing to God, right? It's the, it's, it's the whole reason that he calls us into a saving relationship with himself. Look at verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He hasn't called us for impurity. It's for holiness. Think about that. None of us come to God on our own. What are we? We're dead. We're flatlined beep, in sins and transgressions. So what does God do? He calls us. He calls everyone in a general sense, Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And yet in his great mercy, he also calls his chosen people in an effectual sense. So working and transforming, moving in our hearts such that we find ourselves irresistibly drawn to trust and follow Jesus. John 10, 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So why, why does Jesus do that? Why does he effectually call us to himself? Because his effectual call brings to fruition the sanctifying work that he died to accomplish. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Hear this, friend. Holiness is not an option for super Christians. It is the goal of the gospel for every Christian. You cannot convince God otherwise. But submitting to God's call isn't the only kind of submission we need. There's another kind we need, and this is incredibly good news. And Paul mentions it at the very end of verse 8. And I've saved it to the end, following his lead. God knows... Praise God that he knows this. 
that we are powerless to follow his call. We just are. We're powerless. Not just the first time he calls when we first come to faith in Christ, but every day of our lives, every day that we feel all our lingering sinful desires just pulling us irresistibly away from what we might know as a Christian is holy and honorable to God. He, he knows that. Why? Well, for starters, because he lived this life. He's familiar with weakness and struggle. So, so what does God do in light of that? If you're a Christian, he gives his Holy Spirit to you. He literally takes up residence inside of you. He, he fulfills in your heart, Christian, one of the craziest, amazing promises that he made in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You don't put it in yourself. Praise God. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do we need to be careful to walk and careful to obey? Yes. But who is getting that work done such that it is effectual, it is complete, it is finished, and if you are in Christ, it is guaranteed? God is. The spirit is. So... In this battle to abstain from sexual immorality, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us when we're weak, empowers us when we're stumbling, empowers us when we feel stuck if we're willing to submit to him. And if you want one good reason to submit to the Holy Spirit, here it is. The power of God is infinitely greater than any power of sin. Always. And so know you're not alone in this battle, Christian. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. And, and if you cry out to him for help, the Holy Spirit will strengthen you and help you and enable you to abstain from what you feel like you cannot resist. God created us to know the joy of pleasing him. God saved us in Christ so we could experience the joy of pleasing him. What we have to do to please the Lord isn't a mystery. It's not gray. It's crystal clear in black and white. Pleasing God means pursuing holiness, especially in our sexuality. And so the decision before you today, friend, is not what is pleasing to God. The decision before you today is whether you are willing to please him. And so Jesus instructs us to do the very same thing that he told his disciples to do the night before he died. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, we thank you for that promise. We thank you for the joy we find in Jesus Christ, even while we are still struggling mightily with sin. And we ask for your power this week now, Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to you in every way. Friends, if you would like prayer for any reason, including what we've talked about today, please come forward. If not, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. God bless you.